Hello and welcome to Tell Me Where I'm Going. I'm your author, Chris DeLuca. Welcome back to another episode. We're finally having the chapter episode. It's a day late due to some technical issues, but I think it's going to be worth it. Worth a little bit of a wait. Now, everyone, I think, knows the deal by now, but if you, if you don't, very quickly, this show is an improvised novel. I write a chapter. You tell me what happens next. I write that into the next chapter. Getting more efficient with this description every time. Mostly just this time. Anyway, we have one of those chapters now. And this story, the ongoing narrative of the band, the Traveling Wilburys, in the late 80s, solving crime. Now, we left our heroes last time with the Wilburys and the groupies they were trying to find and everybody down in the, in the underground world and uh, the, the killer clown who they thought they were all that was gone jumped out and, and ripped open his shirt and revealed something and that was what I had a question about to you, the audience, last time, as you may recall and what you all chose to happen uh, to reveal on his chest was a large mole so keep that in mind, because that has been deeply woven into this chapter. All right. Now, the moment we've all been waiting for. At least I've been waiting for it, because I had to wait an extra day to put this out. Please enjoy The Traveling Wilbury Solving Crime, Chapter 8. <laughs> Everyone was inhaling to fully panic again when the tentacles vanished. Before anyone could be relieved, the now one-armed and somehow still-alive killer clown jumped from behind the outcropping, his ratty, tentacle-like green curly wig swaying atop his head. A bloody grin was plastered across his face. Hi there! In the moment before everyone ran screaming in all directions, the clown ripped open his shirt, revealing a large mole. The mole was dreary, dark, and puckered, sprouting a single curved hair. Spotted discolorations on the surface made it resemble a face, or maybe a key. Nobody really noticed any of that detail, however, since the clown raised his sharp silver record in his remaining arm, made a howling sound that resembled a late-night bus, and charged. The crowd split apart, terrified cultists, groupies, and musicians running in all directions. The cavern emptied as people rushed into the adjoining tunnels, bumping and falling over each other in their desperation to not be at the back of the pack. Soon, no one knew where the clown was anymore, to no one's relief. Not seeing him made them imagine him behind every corner, further driving their wild run. George Harrison was used to stampedes. He was all too familiar with screaming people running, but instead of everyone running toward him, they were running away from a deranged circus act. So this is what it felt like to be one of those screaming girls chasing me, he thought in abject terror. During his time in that lovable pun-named group, George had developed a surefire trick for evading the crowds. 
which he thought might be useful now. Unfortunately, the trick involved falling back and joining the pursuing crowd, blending in, and slipping out an alley. Not only were there no alleys, but he was already part of the crowd. He wasn't being pursued, and that felt odd. Without him doing anything, he started noticing the crowd thinning. Were other people somehow using his own move and ducking down alleys he wasn't seeing? Yes, the singles had copped his sound, but stealing escape tactics would be a new low. He was getting mad merely at the thought. I saved everyone in Bangladesh and put on a show. This is how you all repay me? He yelled at the remaining cultists, which, on closer inspection, was zero. So the outburst sounded a lot sadder than the simple non-sequitur it would have been otherwise. Then, George was struck by a thought that made his hot blood run cold. Maybe everyone around him hadn't escaped. Maybe the clown got them. All of them. He whirled around, still jogging backwards, ready for anything. I'll pay you a fortune to go away, he screeched. But the passageway was empty. George was alone. He stopped and rubbed his shoulders, feeling a chill come on. There was no sound of footsteps, no cries of fear, and no hoarse wheezing from people who hadn't run since the Johnson administration. It's quieter than when John did his one minute. Figuring the silence was just as good a reason to keep running as noise, he turned back around and ran smack into someone. Staggering back from the soft impact, his eyes trained up, past the dirty legs, past the covered chest, and over wild eyes, pancake makeup, and a frayed, protesting curly green wig. George stuttered and stumbled, both verbally and otherwise. You, you, you pulled her behind me, cried George, turning and running the other way. A behind me was a term the insurmountably famous musician had developed in isolation to describe when the bad guy was behind the hero in a movie. If he could have had contact with other regular human beings in a casual setting, he might have come up with some other phrase, or, more likely, never felt the need to invent something like that at all. Regardless, scholars have been unable to figure out why, given the artist's history, that the phrase was so dumb. George ran for his life, threading back through the cave passage he had just come down, the clown in hot pursuit. As the duo whipped past each new corner, outcropping or subterranean incline, frightened cultists' faces peeked out from a honeycomb of hiding places, disguised in the rock, before quickly ducking back again. Blind with adrenaline, George burst into the cultists' ritual cavern, where he had run out of mere minutes before. Yet this time it was empty. Or, he thought it was. As he sprinted across the cavern floor, a flailing figure leapt from behind the altar. I, f I fell asleep. What did I miss? As George recovered from a near heart attack, he recognized the flailing figure as Connie. She fell in step with him, not bothering to look behind them. Why are we running? George was as confused as he was angry, flying down an exit passage at random. Are you serious? Is this some big joke to you? Is this your brand of sick humor? Or are you some sort of medical wonder where they successfully transplanted your brain with a goldfish's? Do you not remember five minutes ago? There's a killer clown chasing us! Connie blinked, slowly. 
furrowing her eyebrows in apparent surprise and tucking her chin as if trying to pull her face back into her skull, she turned her head to look behind her. After looking for a moment, she slowly turned back around. Wow, was all she said. George's eyes bugged. Wow? Wow? We're about to get cut down by an underground fairground demon and all you can say is wow? Connie, I honestly never thought I'd ask you this in such a negative tone, but are you on drugs? Oh yeah, big time. The two were silent for a moment. The only sound their hard breathing and the piston-like beat of their footsteps. Finally, George broke the silence. Where can I get some? As luck would have it, the two had run down just the right passage to lead them back to the sad, haphazard reconstruction of Studio 54. Or, Connie was returning, and George was there for the very first time. As they sprinted toward the cobbled-together dance floor, they could see Martin Scorsese in the middle, wrapped around a giant disco ball, snorting coke off his own mustache. I fell off the wagon! he shouted gleefully. Seeing an opportunity, Connie pulled down a cabinet of liquor as she passed, creating an obstacle for the clown that was both dangerous and dangerously alcoholic. The shattering bottles sprayed glass and alcohol in all directions, but mostly all over the clown, the whole scene soundtracked by Martin's maniacal laughter, which was so feverish it was hard to pin down the underlying emotion. Heedless of the destruction, Connie led the way, sprinting out of Studio 54, back the way she and her pals had arrived from in the before times when they were sober. Remembering how to do that much, but forgetting the trap they had triggered, Connie was once again blinded with movie lights and struck by an incessant swarm of paper airplanes made out of Martin Scorsese's divorce proceedings. Covering her eyes and plowing ahead, she made it out the other side. When she could see properly again, George was gone. She didn't stop running, however. She couldn't. She smelled the reek of old vodka, which could only mean one thing. No one person, considering recent events. Hot breath on the back of her neck made her skin crawl. Not wanting to, but compelled. She looked behind her. Roy Orbison? Indeed, the legendary balladeer was stumbling along behind her, a fifth of vodka in one hand. Pretty paper, he sang, plucking a paper airplane out of his hair. Connie stopped, shaking her head at herself. Man, the drugs must be playing tricks on me. I could have sworn you were either a clown or George Harrison. Do you think either of them exist? As if in answer to half of her question, the killer clown burst from the swirling paper airplanes, reeking of absinthe. God damn it, I hate when I'm wrong! Connie and Roy took off running again, but before they could get two steps, the floor collapsed beneath Roy, and he fell straight down. The collapse the Wilburys had caused in the sunken fairground had weakened the rock throughout the underworld, and Roy had stepped on a slab of floor already thin from millennia of water erosion. Roy's freefall soon changed into an impact, his body coming down on a naturally smooth stone chute. Sliding along at bewildering speed, the Texas crooner was soon ejected into the large, collapsed splendor of the sunken fairground all of which Roy had about a second to take in before he landed on a body. Oh, God! You hit me right in the bones! Roy Orbison and Jeff Lynn lay tangled at the foot of a large, once-gaudy structure. Jeff pushed Roy off, helping them both stand with some effort. 
Oh, Roy, I can't say how glad I am to see you, despite the bone pain. Just when I thought this underground nightmare couldn't get any worse, all that crazy clown came back from the dead. I know everyone thinks of me as this real tough guy, but I'll be honest. I was so scared to see that thing come back. I literally could not see. I still don't really know how I got here, but I do know I got here pretty quick. All on pure fear. I know I can tell you this because you never say anything other than your song titles, which I respect. Having a moment to take in his surroundings, Jeff realized he was standing in front of what remained of the mirror maze. He screamed just at the recognition. The name Mirror Maze was hardly descriptive anymore. Any mirror that wasn't shattered by the terrified Bob Dylan and Jeff Lynn was turned to dust from the collapse of the cavern. And the cavern was collapsed. Structures were toppled, massive chunks of earth blocked whole sections, and rocks from what was once the ceiling far above had cascaded down into haphazard mountains of debris. In short, the geography was completely changed, with enough of the familiar to make it eerie. As the two took in the collapsed fairground, a booming voice echoed throughout the cavern. Hi there. It's the clown! Again! And it's, uh, somewhere! Run! True to his description of himself, Jeff was blinded by fear. Yet far from a purely psychological effect, Jeff jammed a big floppy hat down over his eyes before taking off. He was remarkably speedy and adroit at avoiding danger for someone without the ability to see, and he miraculously made it several hundred feet before a claw arm lodged in the side of an upside-down ticket booth snatched off his hat. Blinded with sight, he fell in a heap. Oh, my bones! He cried. Acclimating to seeing again, Roy was gone. Jeff looked around frantically. Roy? 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 Oh my God, shut up! Jeff whirled around. Belinda was peeking out from under part of a car from the Ferris wheel. Do you want to blow my hiding spot? Get lost! Wait a minute, hollered Jeff Lynn. I'm Jeff Lynn. The Jeff Lynn. And I don't know if you could tell, but I'm looking for Roy Orbison. We matter, okay? We're the whole reason you even came. Jeff's next words will never be known, as Belinda had wadded up a ball of loose mud and chucked it into his mouth. Choking and spitting, an entirely disrespected but certainly quieter Jeff Lynn frantically clawed at the muck. Yet it was too little too late. The car Belinda was hiding under had bounced a ways away from the Ferris wheel itself. Toppled and leaning against a stone wall at a canted angle, the top of the Ferris wheel was still easy to see from almost any point in the fairground, and it was there that Belinda spied the clown standing. He was looking right at them and pointing. Jeff had gotten the majority of the mud out. He wasn't happy. Oh, you can kiss goodbye ever kissing me, Miss Whoever You Are. What kind of group he flings mud at? Jeff was once again cut off, this time by Belinda's hip check to get him out of the way as she ran past. His yelps of terror behind her strongly indicated he had finally noticed the clown. Jeff's cries soon became distant as Belinda zigged and zagged through the circus wreckage. As she ran, she noticed movement in her periphery vision. A sandy blur, 
sweeping over the fairground, coming in at an angle to come parallel with her path. It was Tom Petty. Oh, hey, Belinda, I got lost. I assume this is the direction to run away from the clown? Belinda nodded. That's at least partially comforting. You see any of the others? Yeah, I saw Jeff. He was an ass, so I threw mud in his face and left him. Yeah, it serves him right. I bet he peed on me at some point. You got any plans for escape? Uh, well, I did have this one idea. Wait, is there someone under that rubble? Tom looked. Oh my god, someone's arm is poking out below this half-empty dunk tank! Tom ran over and pulled at the arm, which came up easily. It wasn't attached to a body. Tom stood and blinked for a moment. Oh, right, right. This is the killer clown's severed arm. I held it before. <laughs> Silly me. Sorry about that, Belinda. Let's keep running. But she was gone. Before Tom had time to fully register this, the clown leapt from behind the dunk tank, raising his silver record high. Without thinking, Tom hurled the severed arm at the clown, hitting him square in the face with his own appendage. The clown toppled with a yell of fear and disgust, and Tom sprinted away. Despite the layout change, Tom felt himself being mysteriously drawn towards a familiar spot, like how birds can always return home after a migration, or like how a meathead can always find a punk rocker to beat up. Even though the building was almost entirely replaced with an avalanche, Tom found the pile of stuffed animals that had broken their fall all those hours ago. Looking behind him and not seeing the clown, he fished around in the plush dolls for the half-finished joint he had flicked, but found something else. <laughs> yelled Bob Dylan, bursting from the stuffed animals. I know you don't like that, Bob, which is why I didn't do it. Must have been someone else, probably a spirit, said Una, also emerging from the pool of toy animals. Both were in various states of undress. Hey, has either of you seen my joint? Back, foul spirit! No, what? It's me, Tom Petty. I want to find my joint quick before that clown comes again. Oh, well, in that case, let's get out of here. Look up there, at the top of the rock slide. That looks like light. Like real stadium house lights light. I bet if we climb up there, we'll be home free. <laughs> Bob added confirming everyone's suspicions. Man, I really wanted that joint, Tom moaned as the three clambered up the steep incline. Indeed, just as Una had predicted, they emerged onto the quake-damaged floor of the arena. They breathed a sigh of relief. Even though the ground was torn up with places where it had collapsed, and the whole structure seemed to sag alarmingly, it seemed stable enough at the moment, and it just felt good to see each other bathed in good old-fashioned fluorescence. They all laughed and patted each other on the back. They were finally back on their home turf. As they celebrated, one by one, Connie, Roy, Jeff, and Belinda hauled themselves up out of the sunken world from various ruptures in the earth, and the congratulations spread. So relieved was everyone that grievances and betrayals, both new and old, were for the moment forgotten. Then Jeff noticed something. Well, where's George? Everyone looked around. He wasn't there. They all hung their heads, overcome with emotion. Yeah, I guess the clown got him. Roy wiped his eye 
and Bob played a lonely tune on his harmonica. He was the best of us. Sometimes, said Connie, and they all nodded. It was true. No, I can't take this, howled Jeff. Let's go back to the green room. I need to eat something. I'm still hungry from before. Not having anything better to do, the gang trudged up the stairs and swung open the door to the green room, where everything had started. What took you so long? said George, lounging on a couch. George, you're alive! We thought you weren't, whooped Jeff. After much hugging and kissing, Tom asked, But how did you beat everyone here? Real simple. I hid in the paper airplanes and then used Martin Scorsese's elevator. What? said Tom, who, along with most people in the room, had no context whatsoever to understand that insane statement. Before any further questions could be asked or insufficient answers given, Eunice suddenly had a thought. Where's Dixie? There were several moments of stunned silence as each let settle how fundamentally they had failed. Their entire reason for pursuing the clown, which led to their whole adventure underground, had been to find and rescue Dixie. Some of them had even found her at one point, but lost her just as quickly. And now, back in their own familiar world, they didn't even remember her until now. Angry tears of self-flagellation fell down Connie's cheeks, the other girls comforting her as the Wilburys shuffled their feet in shame. Then, Bob Dylan noticed something out of the window overlooking the stadium. He cried. The others rushed up to the window. It was true. The clown had pulled himself up out of the underground world again and was standing on the arena floor. He pointed directly at the group and started walking towards the staircase. Oh, no! No, 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 not again! I didn't even eat anything! It won't die! It won't stop pursuing us! It's from beyond the grave! Uh, what are we going to do? George, what do we do? Everyone turned to George. I don't know. Una is right. It never stops coming for us and doesn't seem to die. It's like the tax man. Yeah, the tax man. The clown was at the stairs. Belinda snapped her fingers. Hold on. I know what to do. We can't kill it and it won't leave us alone. So we set a trap for it. And I know just how to do it. And that's where I run out of ideas. I know that they've got to trap the clown, but I don't know how. Gosh, that's embarrassing. Um, but there it is, and that's the reason for this show. You, you, you help me out, and you tell me what's going to happen next. So, there you have it. Go on Twitter, email me, send me suggestions. Tell me how the gang traps the clown. You know, it could be any kind of trap. It's like a like a booby trap, a, I don't know, an emotional trap, a, a logical trap. I don't know. There's a, think, think about traps. How do they trap this clown? And for bonus points, think about how uh, the whole story is gone. I don't know, but, I, but who am I to judge? I can't think of an idea to begin with. So tell me how they trap the clown. Go on Twitter. 
UTMWIG, Y-O-U-T-M-W-I-G on Twitter. Or email me, suggestions at tellmewhereimgoing.com. And let me know what's going to happen next. All right. We have an exciting show for you next week as well. We're going to have another interview with another artist. It's going to be great. I think you're going to like it. Until then, keep them coming and stay warm. It's not the right time of year for that. But anyway, adios. You've been listening to Tell Me Where I'm Going, a Let's Hear It production. To learn more, visit letshearit.network.